Thanks for joining us today on Uptime Logistics, powered by Cap Logistics. I'm your host, Doug Draper with the Denver Transportation Club. Uh, and today's guest is Susan Fitzy with Otter Products. We're so glad to have you with us, Susan. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So one thing we like to do is, uh, obviously this episode is going to kind of be supply chain logistics. I jokingly said, you know, discussions from Fort Collins because that's where Otter Products is headquartered. So um, that's where you're coming to us live and, and uh, we're excited to have you there. So really this is about um, things that Otter Products is doing in their supply chain challenges and strategies. And then also just some general thoughts that Susan has as a professional, uh, kind of where the industry is trending. So that's kind of what we're looking for today. But Susan, before we really get into the, the meat and potatoes of everything, we always like our audience to learn a little bit about our guests. So give us a little bit about, uh, you know, tell us your story and then maybe dive in a little bit about Otter Products because people, I think, know cell phone cases, but I'm sure there's other things you're doing and, and go from there. So why don't we just start with that? Okay. Um, yeah, I've been with Otter Products or we call it Otter Box 2 is the brand name for about eight years now. Uh, before that, I worked for Payless Shoe Source and their international um, customs compliance division. Um, at OtterBox, I am our global logistic manager, so I manage our product movements throughout the world, really. A lot of it's coming to the United States from other countries, but a lot of it's going from other countries to third countries, so not everything comes to the United States. Um, I also manage our customs compliance department, so just uh, making sure that we work on following the regulations with U.S. customs as well as the customs in every other country that we ship to as well. So that's kind of the main scope of my job. Um, as I mentioned previous to Autobox, I, I worked for um, Payless, where I worked with our stores in other countries on importing product there um, and on the customs regulations for each of those countries. Um, and that's pretty much the extent of, of right. my career in that area. Um, I kind of got a start in the whole industry um, a long time ago. Um, with the advent of NAFTA, um, I worked um, with a company that doesn't exist anymore and helping them set up stores in Mexico and um, shipping things in accordance to NAFTA. So that was a, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, Otterbox has been around for almost as long, although I haven't been with the company as long. Otterbox has celebrated its 20th anniversary about two years ago. Um, the company started off very small, as most companies do, just a startup in our owner, our still current owner and, and owner at the time, Kurt Richardson's garage. He was has always been an entrepreneur. Um, he was an engineer as well. And so he had this idea of just making molded plastic waterproof boxes for hunters and fishers um, and campers and things like that, just to keep your items completely dry if you're rafting or if you're in the rain or whatever. Um, and he continued along at a pretty steady pace, making those out of his garage. Mostly business picked up a little bit. He started making them, um, at a manufacturer locally here in Fort Collins and then expanded a little bit to Denver and his business continued at this kind of low key pace for uh, maybe eight or 10 years. Um, it was with the advent of the first smartphone from Apple that business really took off at Artabox because Kurt had the idea that if people are buying these really expensive phones, um, that they would want to have something to protect it so they wouldn't have to buy a new one. 
So with his experience in plastic molding, he had this idea of making a case for a phone that would protect it from falls and, and things falling on it and carrying it around in our pockets and purses and things like that. And the ability to use the phone while it was still in the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of, he, he started making those, I think 2008 was the year of the first iPhone. And from there, business grew exponentially. Um, it was a great idea he had. And um, after that, of course, cell phones and, and smartphones really took off. And since then, uh, at that time, our, our curve was basically straight up for, for growth. Um, we expanded manufacturing internationally. We expanded sales internationally. We now have a couple of other entities. One is our APAC entity in Hong Kong. Um, we have an entity in China as well um, that does a lot of our engineering um, quality control and logistics. And then we have an entity, our EMEA entity is in Cork, Ireland. We also mm-hmm. have various 3PL warehouses set up throughout the um, world in Canada, Australia, Hong Kong, the Netherlands, and then, of course, a couple here in the United States. So Autobox growth has, was huge um, for about an eight or 10 year period there. It started to stabilize maybe about two or three years ago as people were buying phones, updating their phone less frequently, meaning they wouldn't need to buy a case quite as often, mm-hmm. um, or because phones are made a little bit more durable now than they used to be. They're more waterproof. They're they're able with, to withstand drops better. Um, so our, our sales have, have stabilized and, and aren't growing at the rate that they used to be. And in the meantime, Otter has picked up a bunch of other projects and a bunch of other business initiatives and, and even different brands um, to help us grow, to continue to grow. And one of those things that we um, have started manufacturing, we, we try to stick into our area of expertise. So one of the things that um, we began manufacturing was high-end coolers, um, kind of in competition with the Yeti coolers. Uh, we make those. Um, our sales of those now are through a different avenue. We usually sell those as promotional product for other companies who are, for example, uh, a car company who might be selling a truck can offer a free cooler as, as mm-hmm. incentive. Um, so we still have big sales in that area, but just through a different um, avenue than we previously had. Um, another big push for us has been in the power area. So we um, wireless chargers for cell phones and iPads. Is, has been a big thing for us. We have a product called Stacks, which are stacked um, chargers where you can put them throughout your house or if it's a Starbucks or a, a company or a hotel, wherever, they can put these pods throughout their um, building or, or house and you can charge multiple devices at a time. That's another yeah. one of our hot selling products right now. And then last year, we launched a whole nother brand called Livery. Um, after making our coolers, we found a lot of opportunity in making molded containers that were that held temperature constant. Um, and we looked at different, in the advent with grocery delivery and wine delivery and all the things that are happening right now that one can have delivered to their doorstep, we saw the opportunity to supply um, uh, insulated um carrying containers for those products. So we've partnered with a lot of grocery delivery companies um, and with a lot of vineyards in California for them to be able to deliver their product at this temperature controlled um, environment. And we're also working with the medical industry and pharmaceutical industry as well to be able to make those same deliveries um, and control the temperature. So that's been a really kind of 
especially in the last few weeks, kind of an explosive uh, product for us in that more people than ever are getting their groceries delivered. Um, We're still on the learning curve for that one. It's so much different than um, the supply chain and the logistics for delivering small cell phone cases. These are big. These are these have the requirement of uh, reverse logistics and needing to be returned to the customer. Um, a lot of them have cleaning and sanitization requirements. So it's definitely been a steep learning curve for us to figure yeah. out how to do all this. And we're still on the learning and growth curve of that one. But we yeah. see a lot of opportunity um, in the future for uh, grocery delivery and for medical and for wine delivery um, yeah. to be right. sent in these boxes. Very cool. Well, you you helped set the stage amazingly with with how uh, OtterBox has evolved, and the simple fact that you were talking about some of the uh, new products uh, validates that innovation just runs fluid through your organization. From making boxes you can throw fish in to you know uh, uh, cell phone cases to temperature control, that that's really impressive. Um, uh, so one thing I wanted to jump in, and a term that I've heard used before some folks in your organization is kind of on peg and, and maybe that's, uh, you know, the, I think that's the right term, but um, you know, the, the cell phone case is almost like a fashion brand to some degree. And, and my perspective is, is to my daughter, who's, you know, a senior in high school and she has seven or eight cases and depending on what she's doing that day, she pops this one on or pops that on. And the cool thing is that she just bought a phone and she's like, I'm going to buy this phone and I'm going to walk five steps left or five steps right or go onto the computer to buy a case for the phone. I mean, literally within seconds, that's the next purchase. So talk to me about your supply chain. This is a very broad question, so you can segment it up or just ask answer a portion of it. But the sourcing strategies to make sure um, uh, somebody can purchase a phone and turn right around and see that, that case right on peg like that is amazing all the way down literally to the day. So talk to us maybe first about the sourcing strategies you have um, to ensure that that connection happens. Well, if that question makes sense to you or not. Yep, I understand that question. Yeah, it's a, it's a very unique situation we have because you, you uh, likened us to the fashion industry and it's definitely true. Having worked in the fashion industry, styles change so quickly and, and things change so quickly and seasons change. Um, but unlike the fashion industry where you get to somewhat control when you have promotions and product launches and things like that, for OtterBox, we are at the the changes of the OEMs, so Samsung's mm-hmm. and Apple's and all the other big device manufacturers. So um, like you say, we have this very quick time to market requirement but we don't get to decide what that time frame is. It's it's when they launch the product. And obviously now after 10 or 12 years, we have a pretty good idea of when product's going to be launching in the time frame because it's pretty consistent. However, what we don't readily have always is knowing what the device is going to be like that's coming out. Um, we do have some access to that information beforehand, but there's still a lot of challenges in getting the product to market on time. Mm-hmm. Um, our time to market from the time we know what the device is going to be like to getting it on the peg, as you mentioned, is under eight weeks. And that goes for molding the tools to make it, running tests on the tools, getting the materials to make the product, running the products and the tests, and getting it to our customers. And that all has to be two weeks before, two to three weeks before the actual device 
launches because people like to pre-buy these new devices. And -hmm. when they pre-buy, this is very big for our customers, the Targets and the Verizons and T-Mobiles and all those places. Um, When they pre-buy their phone, they also want to pre-buy a case. So it's ready to go as soon as their phone arrives. They've got a case to put on it to protect it since phones are a thousand plus dollars these days. Right. So, um, yeah, the, the, the time to get it on the peg is, is crucial and getting that information. And so a lot for a lot of um, importers, weeks and days might matter. For us, it really comes down to hours. If the samples don't get to us in the morning instead of the afternoon, then that delays us. Um, what was essential for us up until a couple of weeks ago was our engineers being able to travel to China to, to test the products and, and mm-hmm. to look at everything. Um, things are a little bit different in this climate, but definitely... Yeah, that time to market has always been key. And, and where we lose, if we don't get it there on time, you can think of pig space kind of like real estate. Um, and if that real estate isn't taken up by us, it's going to be taken up by somebody else. Um, and it's definitely a benefit to our customers to um, be able to have our product there because for them, that's, that's a sale as well. And, and there's some margin on it for them. Um, right. They wouldn't otherwise be able to capture. So. Mm-hmm. It's a very tight market and, and it's, it's a very tight timeline, I should say. And, and everything comes down to fitting into these time requirements um, for every, every step of the process has to fit into a time requirement. And so our sourcing strategy has really evolved around being able to do that. Um, it's kind of easy, <clears throat> I think, for companies to become a little bit addicted to using China as their sourcing strategy and Autobox is definitely not an exception to that. We, mm-hmm. we, we depend very heavily on China. Um, our Chinese manufacturers are able to um, work around the clock, manufacture things much more quickly, um, <clears throat> build the tools, <clears throat> excuse me, build the tools themselves um, and um, not have to ship the tools from another location. We don't manufacture everything in China. We do have some manufacturing capability in the United States and Mexico, but believe it or not, those are actually slower manufacturing uh, facilities for us just Mm -hmm. because the tools have to be shipped from China um, to those locations because they don't, neither of those countries has this tool capability. Mm -hmm. And um, they they just don't mold the product quite as, as quickly as, as China does. Um, yeah. And they're also a bit more expensive. So we're very reliant on China. We've expanded a bit into um, other parts of Asia, including Malaysia and Vietnam, and um, looking at other locations like India and the Philippines, although we haven't expanded into those locations right. yet. Huh. Those, that's our main sourcing strategy. Yeah, interesting. So um, talk about barriers, right? The, the whole concept of the show is about uptime and making sure your uptime is on peg on day. Um, I know one of the big barriers that we've dealt with is, is Chinese customs and the quote unquote trade war. You know, how, how has that impacted? And again, this is probably a two hour response, right? But, you know, just overall, how have you responded to some of the trade um, barriers, whether it's tariffs or, or, or ocean or air freight. Talk to us a little bit about that. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think any company, including Otterbox, should be diversified in their supply chain, even without the trade war going on with China. Um, however, as I mentioned earlier, it's easy to become sort of addicted to using China just because of their response time and, and mm-hmm. um, their ability to manufacture a really large amount of volume in a very quick amount of time. Um, 
so the trade wars impacted us quite heavily in that we still import over 70% of our product from China. Um, we have diversified a bit, but it's very slow going. Um, as we experiment with manufacturers in other countries, including Malaysia and Vietnam, it, the infrastructure isn't there, so it's challenging. Um, the, those industries didn't previously exist there. So we'll, like many other companies, we're building the industry itself from the ground up. Um, they didn't have plastic molders there before. So we're starting the industry of plastic molding, and it's been very tricky to start that, and it's very slow. And in addition to that, there's just not the infrastructure. So once the product is built, getting it to the airport or the port to ship is a lot harder. They don't have as many sailings. They don't have as many flights. They don't have the capacity in the airlines. Um, so it's changing these countries a lot, and they'll get there, but it's been slow, I think, for Autobox and for everybody else, too, in trying to, to diversify our supply chain. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So one of the things you spoke about uh, when, uh, at, at the beginning was Otterbox uh, is not just a North American brand, right? There's You have locations all over the world, and, and part of your job is to say, hey, forget the U.S. for a moment. We're going to change our hats, and, and you're making things in China, but people are buying cases in Europe and France and Germany and South America and, and South Africa and stuff. Talk a little bit about um, the challenges that would be same challenges or maybe something different um, versus a traditional, hey, I'm making something in China, I'm importing into the U.S. A lot of our audience has a great understanding and the, the ebbs and flows of that, but they may not understand how do you make it in China and get it to Europe or South America. Maybe talk about some of the differences with that type of supply chain. Okay. Um, yep, we have an entity, as I mentioned, in Cork, Ireland, and their distribution center is in outside of Amsterdam and the Netherlands. And then we have an entity in Hong Kong with a distribution center in Hong Kong as well. Um, mm -hmm. And then we have another entity related to the APAC entity that's in Australia. Um, so we try to deal with things on a regional basis rather than shipping everything to the United States and then shipping from there. If it's product that's intended for the EMEA market, it will go to our warehouse in the Netherlands. And for the APAC market, it'll go to our warehouse in Hong Kong. Um, and the requirements of meeting... Uh, those regions is, is definitely different. Um, you know, the packaging requirements, the language requirements on the packaging is all different. Um, it's tricky for us because each, even within those packaging and country requirements are customer specific requirements on the packaging. Um, so we do special, what are called configurations within those mm -hmm. warehouses of putting the product, which might be the same product as we sell in the US or Canada, but the packaging itself is, is a big constraint. It's what needs to be different um, to be in the right language, to be the right um, dimensions with the right hang tags for other customers. So yeah. um, making sure that that's all unique to that region is a challenge as well. And then also keeping up on, as we're very, in the United States, of course, we're all very aware of the trade war with China, but of course, that trade war isn't happening between the EU and China right now or, or within Asia. Um, so it's still very important to those regions to source product from China because it's cheaper. So while we might be moving our facilities to other locations to meet our needs, we also have to keep in mind, well, is this at the detriment of one of our other regions because it is going to be more expensive if the product is going to be coming from Malaysia now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, we have a facility in Mexico, which is great for us because it's just across the border. The transportation is much cheaper. There's no duties on it. But then that same product is made for other regions and it's more expensive for them because there is no free trade agreement um, or the product doesn't meet whatever free trade agreement requirements there might be, um, for example, between the EU and Mexico. Um, or the freight is much more expensive than it would be from Asia. So we do have to, when we consider where we source, we do definitely have to consider our other entities and the requirements that those places have, um, not just from the customer perspective, but from the customs requirements of of what relationship they have with the manufacturing country. So it's a lot to kind of juggle and manage. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. So we're we're talking uh, with Susan Fitzy with with Auto Products, and we appreciate all, all of your insight. Uh, you mentioned the customization in some of the other other countries. Um, does that happen at the warehouse that you have, say, in Europe, where there's uh, value add that needs to be added? Uh, is it kind of a blank slate? We're going to send ten thousand cases from China into this market, and then we're going to have the local uh, DC uh, create the value. Is that customization done local to the market or is it done more in, in the manufacturing? Um, it's a little bit of both. Uh, we do have that capability and that value add in each of our regional warehouses. We do that a lot in the United States for practically every product. Um, we do it less so in the Netherlands and Hong Kong. However, they do have that capability. Our vendors also need to have the capability of being able to understand what the routing guides are for each of these customers, because for those regions, especially, we do a lot of direct shipments. So the vendor itself sometimes even does that portion of it, of putting it into the specific um, retail packaging for AT&T or Verizon or whomever in each of those different uh, countries or, or whatever the equivalent to those might be other other customers within in Europe. So we do both options. For those two regions, it's more common that the actual vendor does that type of uh, value add and that configuration. Gotcha, that makes sense. So uh, we're doing a couple different things. We, we've never taken questions from our, our audience per se. So a couple, uh, about a week ago, we reached out to uh, some of our listeners and said, hey, what questions do you have um, related uh, to auto products? And so we'll go over kind of two questions, one of which, um, came from us from a listener here uh, in Colorado. What's the e-commerce strategy that Otter Products is, is looking towards? Um, is that something you're going to embrace and you're doing a lot more direct to consumer? Or are you trying to protect your retailers and grow in that fashion? Talk to us a little bit about that. Okay. Um, we've done e-commerce for a long time, uh, over a decade. Um, we do it in collaboration with our sales to our customers, our big box customers and our um, carrier customers. Um, Our strategy is to try to do e-commerce regionally. So we ship e-commerce for the United States and Canada here out of our Colorado warehouse. We have a warehouse specific to just e-commerce since it's a different process than shipping to our big big box stores. Mm -hmm. Um, We we ship e-commerce for the EU out of our Netherlands warehouse. And excuse me, we ship e-commerce for our Asia region out of the Hong Kong warehouse. So each of those warehouses um, deals with their e-commerce regionally. Our websites are also specific to regions and countries. So we have different websites. Um, So for example, an EU customer would not be able to order product from our US website, nor would it ship from our Fort Collins warehouse. We have the controls set up because that's just very expensive for us to be able to do 
um, and just the requirements of, of transferring the product um, and, and meeting the customs requirements from one country to another is tricky too. So we try to manage that regionally as much as possible. Um, our strategy is always to try to sell more e-commerce than before, just because it's a lot bigger margin for us. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, um, MSRP price is, is greater than our wholesale price. Um, so there's there's more margin. So it's, it's definitely always a strategy to try to sell it that way. We have tried lots of different experimental and, and some of them have stuck strategies with e-commerce as well, including partnership with Amazon. So um, if it's Amazon product and it's ordered off the Amazon website, sometimes that ships from our Fort Collins warehouse facility. Um, the transaction is completely between Amazon and the consumer, the Mm e-commerce consumer, but we ship it from our warehouse. That allows Amazon to free up space in their warehouse. It allows us, since it's a product we specialize in, that we would always have that product on hand. So it allows us to open up the volume and and the amount that is sold on Amazon because they don't have to store all the product. We're storing it. Um, So we merely handle the shipping portion of it, but it's invisible to the consumer. They don't, they ordered on Amazon. They don't realize where it's coming from or they don't pay attention or don't care. Um, But that's really been a a good one for us in opening up more being able to sell on Amazon, but then also some consumers go to our website and of course buy it from our website instead. Either way, it's a sale. So it doesn't matter as much to us. Um, We also, with a couple of smaller places, have done a similar type of project where it sells on their website, but we're the ones that are actually shipping it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, well, I totally can uh, understand the regional approach really makes sense. People, like anything else, I want this today or or tomorrow. (laughs) So getting it close close to the customer base is important. So so this one I'm excited about because it means people are listening to us outside of the Colorado region. This, I'm going to ask you to put your academic hat on because this came from the supply chain and logistics program at the University of Kansas. If you can believe that, that's pretty cool. And they wanted to know kind of what advice you would have for somebody that's getting into the industry um, in supply chain and logistics. So flip the hat around and let's talk academics for a quick second. Okay. I'd say the advice I have is um, if you can, while you're still in school, do as many um, internships or apprenticeships or anything like that as you can, Um, practicum projects or competitions, supply chain competitions, where you can get more or less real-world experience with real-world problems while you're still in school, because that will make you very marketable. I'm always impressed with the different events I've been to where students are doing this and being forced to think outside the box with current problems. Nothing like that existed when I was in college. So I think giving college students that experience is just very um, impressive and important that, that they're able to get that right out of the box. Then I'd say once you get into that career, be okay with constant change. Um, as we obviously know in today's environment, but it's been around forever, things globally change all the time. Um, and you just have to be learn to flow with that change and not get frustrated with it, but just rather learn how to <clears throat> prepare for it and anticipate it and then react to it if you have to, if you didn't anticipate it, um, and be flexible. Um, things happen and we have to figure out alternative ways to do things. Um, and in the current climate, things change not only every day, but within a single day, they could change and you have to figure out a new plan in an hour for how to get product to a customer. And, and 
and it's exciting and it's interesting. Um, the other thing I would recommend for students is be aware of global events. Global events have a really heavy impact on supply chain and logistics. Knowing that something is happening in a certain region or country and understanding what implications that could have for a company in the U.S. is, is really important um, in helping you plan and anticipate for those things. So making sure you're off on world events, is, I think, is really important. Um, mm -hmm. And then also getting experience if you're new to the workforce in all parts of supply chain will help you understand your piece of the supply chain a lot better. Um, if you just have a experience in logistics or you just know about logistics, it's hard to understand the needs of the other parts of the company if you don't have experience working in those. So the more experience you can get across all parts of the supply chain, the better you'll be able to do your whatever job you end up having in supply chain. Yeah, no, that's great. I think you just uh, very succinctly described book smarts and street smarts. <laughs> They're getting plenty of book smarts in the classroom, but really what's going to help them in the long term is getting out there in the case competitions and getting internships. So I think that's, uh, that's really great yep, advice. For sure. so that's terrific. Well, I think we've had a good discussion today and really got a good perspective on what's going on over at Otter Product. Certainly want to have uh, you guys on again to talk about maybe some visionary type of things and, and trends that you see in the industry that may relate to Otter Products, but again, just with your vast knowledge of the, of the industry. So uh, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on board and joining us today. I know it's uh, a crazy times that we're in right now and, and hearing about uh, an awesome organized, uh, impactful supply chain. Uh, we really appreciate that. Okay, so, no problem. And thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And I want to thank our audience for joining us today on Uptime Logistics. Of course, it's powered by CAP Logistics. And you can find more information about the show in the description uh, below. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel. And please visit caplogistics.com uh, for all of your customized transportation solutions. Thanks again, everybody. Appreciate it.